Well, let's turn to a familiar passage this morning. We will return to Ephesians very soon, but this morning I thought we just as a congregation would do well to return to a very familiar portion of Scripture. Be reminded of the gospel and its ongoing application to our lives as sinners in need of grace. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, which of course was our assurance of pardon this morning. I love preaching this text and every few years come back to it. Let's briefly bow before the Lord. We ask, Father, that in your tender mercies, which are certainly expressed to us in this text, we may see you to be a loving Heavenly Father, that we will hate our sin more, that we will love the Christ more who has redeemed us and who keeps us until the end. And we pray that as we, your people, are refreshed in the gospel, that those among us today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved from their sins, that they will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to achieve these things, for we are completely and utterly dependent upon him now as the word is preached and and to receive it into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 John chapter 2, the first two verses. This is the word of God. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, here's the situation addressed by these verses in the Apostle John's writing. You are a Christian. You really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you sin. You have a guilty conscience. Your conscience is a heavy load. What do you do? This text is addressed to Christians when we sin. And before we even look at the details of God's answer to the question, what do we do? I want you just to notice that God's heart is for you and that that's seen in the way in which John writes by divine inspiration. Uh, He is tender toward you. He says, my little children. And as John writes, my little children, through his servant John, our heavenly father, is speaking affectionately to you. He is saying to you, my little children, Uh, I have a people, and those people are justified by grace, but they are not a perfect people morally, but a people who need my grace and mercy still. Can you not see the affectionate fatherly character of God reaching out to you this morning through John's inspired writing? He's revealing the truth that you and I need. I am writing this. That is to say it is inscripturated, God's word, the transcript of God's own heart. For behind the human authorship of John is the ultimate authorship of the Holy Spirit who reveals the Father's heart to us. The ultimate purpose for which John writes, he says, to keep you from sin. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. The holy God can desire nothing less. In view of forgiveness, he wants us to hate all that is contrary to that forgiveness. He wants us Christians to hate those sins that nailed our Savior to the cross. 
But of course, the context in which he writes is confession of sin, as we see in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's writing in a context in which there is ongoing faith, ongoing repentance, confession, believing Christ. Grace, he says, will not lead us to license. As a Christian, I long to follow him. I long to obey him. I long to do his will. And yet I still struggle internally with temptation and sin. Satan, of course, you know, means accuser. And we are still often accused in our hearts and consciences as believers in Jesus. My own conscience can accuse me when I sin. So that is what he has in mind. That's what John is addressing. What do we Christians do when we sin? Well, the first thing we see in answer to that as we come to the text is, and we just must remember, forgiven sinners are still sinners. Forgiven sinners are still sinners. Forgiven sinners are completely forgiven. We are justified by grace through faith, and that justification is complete and total. Let me remind you of some Old Testament passages that speak so beautifully, anticipating the shed blood of Christ that would come. These Old Testament writers remind us of the completeness of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. In the 103rd Psalm, The Lord says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In the book of Isaiah, in uh, chapter 43, verse 25, God says to his people, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And if we turn over to the 44th chapter of Isaiah, God says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And perhaps the greatest of those Old Testament passages is found in the book of Micah, in the seventh chapter, in which God's forgiving nature toward his people in Christ is expressed this way. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And that is what the Lord has done for us, his people, in the coming of Christ. He has tread iniquity underfoot. He has cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And so what you must understand before going on is that in God's court of law, every believer in Jesus Christ is completely justified. You are declared righteous. It is an act that is unrepeatable. I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. I am dressed in his complete white robe. I am righteous in the sight of the law of God. Nothing can be added to what he did for me. Nothing can be taken away from what he has done for me. There is nothing of my own merit. I have none to be added. There is no one and nothing anywhere that can remove this righteous robe once it is received by faith alone. Forgiven sinners, however morally still sin. Back here in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, John makes that plain. 
If we say, he's addressing us Christians, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So the point is, forgiven sinners, that's us who believe in Christ, we still sin. Now, again, the question just continues to come throughout my ministry And I think it's important to ask and answer the question here this morning. If I am forgiven, if I am pardoned, if I am justified, if the righteous robe of Christ belongs to me, if I am truly forgiven, why do I still, as a believer in Jesus, confess my sins? Well, we have to distinguish relations here. When we first come to know the Lord, we come before Him as one who is a righteous judge Under his condemning wrath, we trust in Christ and that condemnation is removed once for all. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But now as a believer in Jesus, justified, completely accepted, received in his court of law, righteous before him by the righteousness of Christ, now I have a heavenly father. And my heart, even though legally I am justified, my heart is still a sinful heart. Yes, I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I'm being changed. I'm being transformed. But it is progressive. And now when I sin, I do not come before a condemning judge. But I come before a heavenly Father. And I sin against my Father. You know, there's all the difference in the world in going into a court of law before a judge and having committed a crime and committing a crime against your loving father, isn't there? And that's the relation that we must distinguish. When you first come to Christ by faith, God's wrath and condemnation have been removed by Jesus' blood. The wrath of God once for all, forever removed, you are declared righteous. God is no longer a condemning judge. Now he is our heavenly father. Why do I continue to confess my sins? Not because God will condemn me. Not because the debt is unpaid. The debt has been paid in full once for all. I mean paid. Paid in full. The debt has been paid. But I come because as a son I sin against my father. In Christ's righteousness I am perfect. But in my heart I am not perfect. I am not where I will be. When I reach my heavenly home, and oh how I long for that day when my heart is conformed to my status in Christ. Justified sinners are still sinners in our hearts, but we no longer love our sin. We do not enjoy our sin. We do not habituate our sin, and we still struggle. We struggle as Christians with sin, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. So do you understand? It's extremely important that you do. That in God's court as a believer, you are righteous and have a perfect record. You are completely accepted and completely received. But in my heart, 
I will not in this life be free from a struggle with temptation and sin. I am morally imperfect. I am judicially perfect. Now, throughout the history of the church, just to give you an example, uh, John and Charles Wesley and later uh, Charles G. Finney taught that Christians could have sinless perfection. They actually taught that we could have a second work of grace and that we could become sinlessly perfect as Christians in this life. Well, no one who really understands the law of God the holiness of God, the righteous nature of God, no one who understands his own heart can believe this. I think of that man, when I think of the subject, who made the statement to someone, um, I haven't sinned in years, had a second work of grace, I'm now morally perfect, I haven't sinned in years. Someone replied, well, you just sinned, you just told a lie. So we are not morally perfect. We long for that. We want that. But we still sin as believers in Jesus. As Martin Luther says, we are simultaneously just and sinner. Second thing then, forgiven sinners, justified sinners do not lose their Savior when we sin. We do not lose our Savior when we sin. And notice how he puts it here in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now this is a present active indicative. And when you have in the Greek New Testament, in Koine Greek, when you have a present that's in the indicative mood... In the indicative mood, the present means something that's ongoing. Almost always it means that. And that's what he's saying to us. It's not we had, it's not we might have, we have, and we always will have. Continually we have an advocate with the Father. That's the good news that comes to us in this present tense. He is qualified to plead our case. He can enter into the Father's presence for us. So you sinned. How awful that is. We should not minimize our sin. How awful to sin against the God who has saved us in Christ. We are believers in Jesus. There's still indwelling sin, however. But you did not lose your advocate when you sinned. Sin is awful, but you did not lose your Savior when you sinned. You did not lose your advocate when you sinned. Did He not love you when in eternity past He contemplated you in sin? Did he not love you when he died for sinners? He didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. Well, he intercedes for sinners. Well, you say, you don't understand, Pastor. My sin is just so great. Well, your advocate is greater. But you don't get it. My sin is so deep. I've sinned against the Lord so thoroughly. Well, his atonement is more thorough than your sin, infinitely more thorough. Your justification lasts. And for our continuing moral struggle with moral defilement, his blood pleads for us. I think I've told you about my friend Raymond Lamar Swanson, great man, Baptist minister, Calvinistic minister, died at age 42. Oh my, he was a great preacher. My, he could preach rings around preachers that that uh, everybody knows about. I mean, he was just a powerful preacher of the Word of God. Died at age 42. Wonderful man. I was one of two ministers that had the privilege of preaching his funeral. 
And before uh, I had my comments, there was, I can't remember if it was a duet or a quartet, it uh, sounded like an awful choir to me. Because uh, what these people were singing before I had my opportunity to speak was, uh, and I remember the words, let my works plead for me. Let my works plead for me. When I go to heaven, I die. Let my works plead for me. And I said, oh man, I want to be gracious, but I've got to say something about this. So I had to say, what you just heard sung is totally contrary to the gospel and totally contrary to what this man preached in his ministry. It's not let my works plead for me. It is let the blood plead for me. Let the righteousness of Christ plead for me. Christ is my advocate in heaven, not my works, but His work. And any work that I offer up as a Christian is accepted only because of the work of Christ. Only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So forgiven sinners, justified sinners, let me tell you, you do not lose your advocate when you sin. And that leads us to the third thing that we see in this text. God's provision for forgiven saints who are still sinners. God's provision for forgiven saints who are still sinners. Now, what John does here is to bring two images to the fore. Two images. And the first image is the image again of a courtroom. uh, Because he uses the word parakleton, the word paraklete, which means lawyer. It means advocate. One who pleads another's case. And he is actually a literal translation. He is toward the Father. So the point here is that he is in the Father's presence for you. Now don't get the idea that the Father is somehow, is somehow against you and the Son is for you. This is God's determined plan from eternity together. The triune God determined your eternal salvation. The just God in love provided your Redeemer who justifies and accepts sinners. He fulfilled the righteousness that God's righteousness required him to require in order that you might be accepted in his presence. And so he can say in the text in verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father. This means that the once for all finished, never to be repeated, sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you continues to avail for you now and forever because your advocate pleads your case in heaven. Yes, as one old preacher says, there is enough tinder in the life of the most moral man and sinner to keep the flames of hell burning forever because the justice of God is infinite. But you, Christian, will never be dragged into the court of law again. Never. And that's Paul's point back in the book of Romans, when in the 8th chapter he puts it this way, beginning in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of the Father? Who indeed is interceding for us? That is great to know. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. We have one intercessor. So why attempt to come up with your own intercessor? Why attempt to come up with your own lawyer when we have one divine intercessor? You do not need Mary's intercession. You do not need the intercession of a priest to keep you. You do not need to think that somehow your own works can be your intercessor. I need, you need, Jesus as our advocate. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So he brings to us the image, of course, of a courtroom, but then very powerfully he brings another image, and that is the image of a temple. And you can see this because he uses this great word propitiation, verse 2 of chapter 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The propitiation. You remember how Paul uses this term in Romans 3, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, propitiation is one who has satisfied divine wrath. That's what Jesus did when he shed his blood on the cross. Your case is in the hands of of the one who satisfied divine justice. That's what he's saying here in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And it brings the whole day of atonement to our memory from Leviticus 16. Now, sometime on your own, read Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, which of course reflects the day of atonement and how it is fulfilled ultimately in the person of Jesus, who passes through the heavenly court to the Holy of Holies. Uh, where God is present, not once per year, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, not for his own sins, for he has none, but the text says, for others, that's us. A spotless sacrifice offered himself once for all at the end of the ages, now seated at God's right hand, where his blood continues to purify. That's what Hebrews tells us. Mr. Spurgeon put it in this remarkable way. Yes, my father, that sinner was unrighteous, but remember that I was accepted as his substitute. I stood to keep the law for him and gave my active obedience. I went up to the cross and bled and so gave my passive obedience. I have covered him from head to foot with my doing and my dying. I have so arrayed him that not even the angels are adorned as he is. For though they may be clothed with the perfect righteousness of a creature, I have given him the righteousness of God himself. I am become unto my people the Lord their righteousness. See, I have taken the jewels out of my crown to bedeck them, the garments from my own back to cover them, and the blood from my own veins to make the dye in which I have dipped their garments till they are purpled with imperial glory. What can there be asked more for the sinner than this? Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands up to plead for me and pleads his righteousness. And Mark, he does this not if I do not sin, but if I do sin. There is the beauty. It does not say if any man do not sin, we have an advocate. But if any man sin, we have an advocate. So that when I've sinned and come creeping up to my closet with a guilty conscience and an aching heart and feel that I'm not worthy to be called God's son, I have still an advocate because I am one of the many men that sin. 
I sin and I have an advocate. Oh, I know not how to express the joy I feel in my soul to be able to put it so. It is not if any man be righteous we have an advocate. It is not if any man be prayerful and careful and godly and walk scripturally and in the light and so on. But if any man sin, we have an advocate. Oh, my soul. There's the music of God's heart in those words, music such as the prodigal heard at the festival which welcomed his return. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ, by his advocacy, presents the merit of his blood for you. Christ, by his advocacy, answers every indictment against us. Christ, by his advocacy, calls for acquittal because he satisfied the law once for all. Which leads us to this. Fourthly, what this means for saints who sin. What this means, in other words, for you and for me when we sin. Because the sight of our sin is ugly, and it will be to any believer in Christ. The sight of sin is ugly. Watson the Puritan put it this way, The sight of Caesar's bloody robe incensed the Romans against them that slew him. The sight of Christ's bleeding body should incense us against sin. Let us not parley with sin. Let that not be our joy which made Christ a man of sorrow. We should hate our sin. It's awful. It's awful. My sin is awful. We should not in the least detract from that. But the door of mercy is not shut. What do you do when, as a Christian, you sin? Which, of course, is daily. We come to him and we trust his blood. We come to him and we believe the word. We receive his promise. We believe that we have an advocate with the Father in heaven. What you do is to come and immerse your conscience in Jesus' blood. Trust in his sacrifice, depend upon his heavenly advocacy. And this is not true only for those who were directly reading the epistle that John wrote, but for believers here and now. For notice how it puts it in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, which certainly does not mean universal redemption. Scripture teaches particular redemption. Universal atonement, the idea that Christ died for men who are in hell, presupposes double jeopardy. It presupposes that Christ can pay the debt, pay it in full, and then there are sinners who have to pay it again for eternity. No, no, if thou my discharge hast procured and fully in my stead endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Universal redemption would remove the comfort of this text. It would mean that Christ intercedes for those who will be lost. It would mean that our advocate loses cases. But folks, listen, the righteous advocate has never lost a case. Not one, and he never will. What then does it mean? He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Well, it means this. Not only you to whom I write, But the redeemed of every place, the redeemed from every people group, the redeemed of every period for whom Christ propitiated the wrath of God, the Jew, the Gentile, the moral man, the immoral man, those of all races, those from all backgrounds, no matter your background or how great your sin may have been, this lawyer has never lost 
a case. For you, believer, let me remind you, Christ presents the merit of his blood. For you, believer, let me remind you, Christ answers every indictment against you. For you, believer, let me remind you, Christ's sacrifice calls for acquittal because the law is satisfied. And that is true of those for whom he has died throughout the world, those throughout time until he comes again. Now that's the great news. That's the good news for us this morning. You sin, you should hate it, but you've not lost your advocate. You have an advocate with the Father. He's propitiated. He has removed your sins. He has satisfied divine justice for everyone who believes in Christ. Now my lost friend who may be here this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me say to you, there is only one labor for sin, and that is the blood of Christ. You will not be saved by your works or your efforts or by good intentions. There is only one who can save you from sin, and that is Jesus Christ. You know how glad I am that God is not waiting for your permission, that God will save whom he will and only through Jesus' sacrifice. And even this morning, the Holy Spirit is capable of drawing a lost sinner to himself. You know, I've given you that illustration a few years ago from Augustus Toplody. I actually reread it this, uh, uh, this, this week, an article in which uh, Toplady addressed the national debt in 18th century England. Imagine what he would write now uh, in England or America or in other places. But he addressed the national debt. And then he turned it to a way in which he could preach the gospel. Um, He says, let's look at a greater debt than the national debt. Yes, there is a debt that's greater. And that is the debt that we sinners owe to God because of our sin. And so in this article, Augustus Toplady says, suppose you just sinned once in 24 hours. Well, you know, that's not right. Well, let's double that. Well, that's not right. How about once every hour of life? Um, Remember, he's addressing unbelievers here. Uh, Once every minute. Well, no, the scriptures say that there's no one righteous, no, not one, that we, we sin every moment against God if we do not know Christ. So once every second. He says, well, if we sin every second, then of course you could get down to microseconds and all of that, but he says every second. He said, in this view of the matter, our dreadful account stands as follows. At 10 years old, each of us is chargeable with 315 millions and 36,000 sins. At 20 years old, with 630 millions and 720,000 sins. At 30, with 946 millions and 80,000 sins. At 40, with 1,261,440,000. At 50 years old, with 1,576,800,000 sins. At 60, 1,892,160,000 sins. At age 70, 2,207,520,000 sins. At 80, with 2,522,800,000 sins. And then he asks the question, when shall we be able to pay? When shall we be able to pay off this immense, this immeasurable debt? (laughs) But of course, the point is, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. 
The issue is the heart. And one sin, just one, is deserving of God's infinite displeasure because He is absolutely holy. One sin deserves His infinite displeasure. So at the conclusion of this article, Augustus Toplody appended a new hymn that he had written. He had just written it. And here's the original text. Rock of Ages. Cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Whilst I draw this fleeting breath, when my eye strings break in death. When I soar through tracks unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Someone here this morning, you begin to see your sin for the first time as a sin against a holy God. You begin to understand that it's only through Christ. Do you know where that conviction comes from? If it's true and real, it's the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you out of your sin and unto the Savior. That's where it comes from. And oh, may the Spirit of God enable some sinner for the first time this morning to pray from his heart, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.